All right, tonight I have two amazing guests. And somebody said, Brian, you have to dress the part. You can't wear a hoodie. Well, I got to figure it out. So I'm going to go get dressed and I want you to help me because I'm not sure what to wear. Let's go. The great thing about my show is I only have to wear a top, so I'm just going to try on tops. What do you think? Golf attire? Nah. My March Madness uh, basketball coach attire? The thing is, these two are educators who have supported teams and districts around the country trying to make sure that every kid is literate. They have a new book out. I don't think I want to wear this. This makes me feel like I'm going on a safari, like a moon wild kingdom. <laughs> what about the sweater? It's kind of like a laid back, relaxed, comfortable look. It itches though. What about the Miami Vice Crockett and Tubbs look? No, my wife Kathleen would kill me. What about the collar shirt with the tie and with the, the vest? You know, my guest, both of them led national model professional learning community at work schools and those schools hosted over thousands of schools visits to try to replicate their practices these two are just so dynamic and i want to make sure that i'm dressing the part what do you think about this what about the sweatshirt with no hoodie you know they're very non-pretentious if that's a word and so i pretty much can wear anything that's comfortable and these two will be okay with it so without further ado, I want to welcome to a conversation with Brian, the authors of the upcoming book, Literacy in a PLC, Jackie Heller and Paula Maker. Let's do this. So I heard somebody snickering. <laughs> they they listen to their intro. You are <laughs> an absolute nut. <laughs> you are a nut. You're a nut. You're a nut. Okay, I'm a little upset that it didn't end with a tuxedo. Though I was waiting for the tails and the tie, Brian. I was gonna put some other things on, and I'm like, this is getting too long. So, <laughs> you two, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, and kind of amusing that uh, like we had no idea you were opening with that, but but Paula. You gotta do a little. Oh, look at you all! We dressed awesome. the part as well. We did. We called awesome. each other. <laughs> <laughs> you coordinated. You didn't call me. I would have worn that shirt too. So, hey. Well, so, at the, at the beginning of each one of, of my shows, I ask my guests to really start by talking a little bit about their personal journey, the professional story, as much as they like to. And so, either one of you can start. Who is Paula Maker? Who is Jackie Heller? Will the real Slim Shady please stand yes. up? I, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think I could probably at this point tell you more about Jackie than I could myself. Um, and just because her story has been so inspiring to me and I've learned so much just about who she is as an educator. So it's really interesting to um, be asked that from my perspective, but I'm going to say, you know, part of my story is just um, growing up a child of, of poverty with 
lots of people that loved me very much and knew that education was my ticket forward um, out of poverty and into a life of possibility and a mom who drilled that into me and um, actually did not have confidence as a learner. I was diagnosed very early with ADHD, but it wasn't actually a technical diagnosis. It was my grandmother who diagnosed me and she wasn't a clinical um, psychologist or doctor. She just was observant but she knew and she knew but she called it h-a-h hyper as hell (laughs) so i knew this and i knew that you know going into schools i would always be a disappointment to my teacher like i knew that i was the learner that i could that they wanted i could never be the the learner they wanted me to be so i overcompensated by trying to sit at the front and, and always be kind and respectful. And I'd bring them weeds and sometimes I'd split my sandwich. And sometimes there was just mayonnaise on that sandwich because we couldn't afford the meat, you know, and those kinds of things. And, um, fell in love with a place that I could, you know, escape. And that was through books and reading and adventures and friends that I made through pages of the books that my teachers taught me to, to love and read. And that's something that later moved me into a degree in theater. And my dream was to be a professor of theater and Shakespeare is a love of mine, classically trained. Um, Restoration and Elizabethan theater happens to be my expertise. (laughs) Um, And then- Never knew. Yeah, it's so weird because that love of theater brought me to my love of being an educator because to pay for college, which I was responsible for every penny, um, they uh, I was part of a work program and we brought the theater into inner city schools and we brought Shakespeare and we brought plays and puppetry into these scholars lives and as soon as I walked into these campuses and met the kids and worked with them, I was hooked. So I graduated with a double major in theater and English and went right back to school to be a teacher. Wow. Wow. And then after you went, you went right back to school to be a teacher, then what happened after that? Um, I became a teacher. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, the more I did the work, the deeper I felt the connection and passion to the work and continuously moved into new and exciting roles. Uh, 17 years as a classroom teacher or an instructional coach, primarily literacy has always been my focus. Nobody lets me teach math. I actually think I would be okay, but nobody lets me uh, teach math because I'm the kid that took algebra two, two times. And I thought that's why it was called algebra two. Um, But then moved on to that supporting teachers and supporting uh, students in in ways that I could have exponential impact. And from there, my dream was to be the director of curriculum instruction. Um, That was just always this beacon of how I could help serve kids the best. And so I was told you had to be an administrator to do that. So um, became an assistant principal and thought I would hate it. I thought this is going to be my penance, my punishment. I'm paying my dues. And I loved it. I fell in love with another opportunity to support scholars and teams and then uh, went on to the district level leadership. And that was another level of learning for me. But 
I think when I think about where I've been the happiest and most fulfilled, I, I, I have ever felt in this work is closer to, to scholars and teams yeah. and that's on campus serving in whatever role you put me in, in a campus, that's where I feel um, the most productive and the happiest. Well, and you can see it in your eyes when you talk about it, Paula. You really can. Yeah, I'm really lucky. I love what I do. And I'm so grateful that that's a statement I can say and genuinely, genuinely mean it. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie, talk to us a little bit about your journey. Um, my early journey was was pretty different than Paula's. I was actually the, the logical math whiz. And so I... Um, decided I would, you know, use those math skills. And I was a, a business major in college and started in the business world and decided after about a year or two that, you know what, this really wasn't for me. And so I was going to use those math skills and become a middle school math teacher. So I went back and got my education degree with those intentions and did a semester of student teaching in algebra, really loved it, but did another semester of student teaching in an elementary school and um, realized that Yes, teaching math was great, but I only saw one dimension of my students at the middle school. And when you taught elementary and you got to see students who struggled in math just flourish in reading or the opposite. Yeah. And, and why was that? And how can you build on the strengths of one student, the, the problem solving of that? Like, how do you figure out how to help these kids in the areas where they struggle was what I really loved. So that, that problem solving piece um, of my math brain kicked in and, uh, I worked at the elementary level as a classroom teacher. My first job, I taught fourth grade and I had a slew of students reading on a first grade level and nothing in my middle grades certification. I was certified to teach grades four through eight, which that certification doesn't even exist in Virginia anymore. But so none of my classes were about how to teach kids how to read. They all assumed they'd be reading by the time they got to you. Sure. They didn't know how to read and I didn't have a clue how to teach them how to read. And so Every workshop and in-service and after-school special I could go to, I went to. And if you take enough of those, you eventually become a literacy specialist. So um, that's that was my circuitous journey of, uh, of why you've got like a, a math brain problem solver, uh, really loving the work that we do in literacy. And my entry into like when I left the classroom and became a, a literacy specialist, I was a really doing reading interventions at the time. And you talk about problem solving, like mm -hmm. this student can't read this word for this reason, but this student stumbles over that same word, but for a different reason. And so how do you, how do you connect that and, and build on what they know and target exactly what they don't know, because we've got to figure this out. Yeah. Um, so that, that's it. So I was working as a, a reading interventionist, um, loved what I did, but I was at a school that had an incredibly toxic culture. Um, and just knew I, I had to get out of there no matter what. And so looked for another job as a reading interventionist and got um, an interview at a school that was a good like 40 minutes away from my house. But, and in the DC area, that 40 minutes can be a lot longer than 40 minutes in traffic. Um, and the, the principal had his feet up on the desk as he interviewed me because he was retiring the next month. They hadn't announced who the new principal was gonna be. But that toxic culture, just I knew I could not exist in that again. So I took it, you know, yeah. huge risk, didn't know who was coming in, didn't know who I'd be working for, but it was a job and I took it. And lo and behold, the new principal was this guy named Brian Butler. And uh, 
happy ending to the story. So I'm, I'm the lucky one because I, I saw somebody who was so passionate about literacy. And I think I even told you this, Jackie, that, you know, and again, I, I had my struggles um, learning how to read when I was little and I was just lucky to be born in the right family. And, and my dad didn't so much teach me literacy. He just gave me a lot of background knowledge. My parents took us to a lot of places. So I had a lot of background knowledge. So, but when I saw you, I'm like, that's the teacher I needed. That's the person I needed. Oh, yes. You're, I, I could pull it out if I had enough time, I could find it. Um, it's in a file in this room somewhere. But the very first time you came in and saw me, I was doing a reading recovery lesson with Butch. I don't know if you remember Butch, but he, he was a first grader and he yep. was the uncle of another first grader. Do you remember that? Yes. And, yep. and he had like the really shaved head. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. Yes. And uh, you, you know, you came and observed for a few minutes and then you, you, it wasn't like a formal observation. You just went on down to the next classroom. So that's what you did. You were very present in the rooms and, uh, when I was done with Butch, there was a, a note on my desk that said, I just saw you like teach him to read. Like I saw it happening. And if I had had a teacher like you at the time, things would have been different for me. And that note was like above my desk for a good half a dozen years till the ink faded off of it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, Jackie, again, as I say, I, I'm the lucky one, but I'm the lucky one, really. I don't, I don't think things happen by accident. And so me meeting Paula, and connecting with Paula and us sometimes somehow converging um, and, and working together, I, I, it's not by accident. And I think this book, you all, you two coming together and writing this book, and this is where we're going to start, because I want to make sure that we kind of walk through the book. And I may, you know, at times read some passages or read some sentences from the book and ask you all to respond to them. But in your introduction, you say, or you, you quote Beverly Cleary, if you don't see the book you want on the shelves, write it. So yeah. talk about that because this book, I think, and I've read it and I've go, I, I have gone through it and it hasn't come out yet, but I've gone through the copy that you all um, shared with me. And it's so powerful because it's not about a program. Um, it, it really, and we're going to talk about the reading wars in a few seconds. It supports everybody. And so talk about this idea of the PLC process melding, meshing with literacy. The thought of you reading the book, Brian, is, is wonderful, but I am not going to be satisfied until I see our book with your trademark sticky notes sticking out all over it. Like that's yeah. I'm so excited for that day when it is actually in print and you can read yes. the version. We've Can't got another few weeks to wait, wait, but that's like going to be the biggest honor is to see <laughs> right, which pages did he sticky out? Which, what uh -huh. resonated with him? What did he have to think about? Yeah. <laughs> You know you've arrived when Brian Butler sticky yeah. notes. <laughs> but that's, forget bestseller. That's how you know the book is is resonating. So yeah. this is a little so, secret. This is um, Jackie. You, you all know I had a, a tough time learning how to read, and I still have a tough time with literacy. And so that's how I keep focused, and that's yeah. how I read. I I don't think you remember this, Jackie. And I'll ask you to respond to that quote. But a couple of years ago, um, I was asked to do to um, do like a an audio kind of version of a, a article. And I still do not read fluently. So I asked Jackie, I said, help me. Because if you put a book in front of me, Paul, right now, and ask me to read a page, I freak out. I need like to preview it. I need to read it beforehand. And I still cannot read fluently. And so Jackie was like, Brian, chunk it, do this, do that. 
Um, and so I, you know, for those people who still think, you know, literacy is just reading fluently, it, it that's part of it, but part of it is just sticking to it and, and finding your 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 method to make sure that you you get through. Um, I think Jackie, you told me some at one point you said that there are a, I'm, not, I'm not sure of the percentage, but there's a big percentage of people who are undiagnosed dyslexic. Mm -hmm. and, and so I don't know if that's my case, but I know that I still have a difficult time. So those sticky notes, um, in part, are my my way of helping myself read. Yeah, it's yeah. about yeah, it's about 25 percent of the population has characteristics of dyslexia and whether or not you have coping skills or not. And yeah. it's funny B, and then Jackie needs to answer your question. I found out, we found out my husband was dyslexic when I was being certified as a dyslexia specialist. So I was getting my master reading teacher certification. And part of that project was, you know, we had to screen different people and so of different ages. And so I was like, honey, um, I need you to help me with this assessment. And just, he was like, okay, whatever you need. And so we went through some phoneme deletion and manipulating sound right. and absence of text. And Mark was failing the test and I was like no honey it's okay you can really it just give me your legitimate answer because I thought maybe he was yeah. pretending to be a right. student and he was like for example we say say tiger now say tiger but you're going to delete that middle sound so you say say tiger now say tiger without g what's left right and Mark was like and he yeah. couldn't do it. And so this is how we discovered he was 40 years old yeah. when we discovered that he has characteristics of dyslexia. So it's super common for many of us to have had moments where we don't feel like strong readers or yeah. literacy is not our best subject. So right. normalize normalize. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's what we want people to feel yeah. because I, I'm not ashamed of saying that because I still like... I understand and I, I use my strategies mm -hmm. and I, I I do read everything, but it takes me a long time. And yeah. as Jackie knows, I'm like, you know, the squirrel, bing, bing, bing. I, I don't focus so I can read it for a little bit, but then I need to take some some breaks before I start again. So, but anyway, so both of you, um, if you don't see the book you want on the shelves, write it. Yeah, Jackie, you got a <laughs> story. Um, really my, my dream when I started working for a solution tree was to, to help schools along the PLC process, but because my role in doing that at Mason Crest and, and other schools was through the lens of a literacy teacher, there really was no way for me to separate those two things. And so, um, within solution tree, there's a, a large group of people that guide schools, um, along the PLC process. And I was part of that. There's a group of people that. Um, guide people along the RTI process. And because I was very experienced as a interventionist and I worked a lot with that, I, I helped people with that. But there was no group of people that that helped schools on their literacy journey. Um, there is a, a large section of, of mathematics educators yep. that um, do a lot of professional development and there was no literacy. And to me, that just you know, it's like a, a leg that's missing a table. And so yeah. um, we kept waiting for this to happen. And we thought somebody that was, you know, a bigger name in the literacy world or a bigger name in the PLC world or in both was going to come along and, and write that book. Um, and then several years ago, Paula and I both do a lot of work in the state of Arkansas. And we've got a whole contingent of, of associates that 
um, work on projects there. So we were together at a training weekend and um, there was a part of the weekend where they had everybody kind of separate by their content area. And so the the leadership coaches were in one area kind of developing what's it look like across a three-year plan as you work with schools. And the math people were in one corner kind of developing their three-year plan. And the literacy people all came together and we kept looking to the leadership people and looking to the math people and they had all these resources they were pulling from and we're going, well, I got this PowerPoint that I came up with and I've got this article that I use and there just wasn't a, a cohesive plan. And so um, we, we knew that that book had to get written. and. Um, fortuitously, my flight away from that training weekend home was delayed by three hours. And so I sat there and wrote up the table of contents for the book that we needed. And then life happened and I was working on a PhD program and had the opportunity to write the book that you and I were part of co-authoring and it kind of got put on hold for a while. Um, and then, uh, when it came time to write it, I was, um, really, kind of wiped out from writing our book, What About Us? And I was like, you know what? I I never let other people down. If there's a deadline or I owe somebody something, it's going to happen. But just me saying, oh, I want to write a book and I'm going to work on it today or tomorrow, something else is always going to get in the way of that. And so I, I knew I had to have somebody as a accountability buddy, you know, someone who's going to hold me accountable and support me in this work and um, and really influence kind of take that nugget of an idea and make it even better and um the absolute like there was no other phone call it, the absolute only person to consider was paula and those of you who like are familiar with literacy there are these literacy wars and so um it's ridiculous but you really do have to find someone who you are aligned with in your philosophical beliefs when it comes right. to how we teach literacy and um so there aren't a lot of people that i am you know, I'm a purist when it comes to PLC at work. You know, I, I really, I, I see myself as a legacy of, of Rick and Becky and we have to honor their work and stay true to it. Um, so to find someone that, that believes in the tenets of the PLC process and uh, the same beliefs from literacy, we were quite the match, plus made it a whole lot more fun to have a co-author along the way. You know, we're going to jump into your book in a few seconds, but Paula, can you talk a little bit about the process? You know, you you two would text me sometimes with your pictures and you were like in Texas near a beach somewhere writing or you're taking a weekend somewhere else. How? What was the process like in, in you know, working with Jackie, but also how did it change you? Oh, uh, Jackie and I stink as writing partners. Mm -hmm. uh, we are great collaborators. We are amazing researchers we are even better friends but when it actually came to putting all of our research and passion and ideas on paper we would um maybe take a a path <laughs> down any distraction we could find because the actual writing part was a not something i felt confident in at all and b we had so many ideas and passions that I think one of the things that we learned from each other and our amazing editor, Amy Rubenstein, was how do we package all of this passion and everything we want to say? And instead of writing 18 volumes of an encyclopedia to get it down, how do we figure out, just as we would ask teacher teams to figure out what matters most and what are our priorities to ensure students learn? How do we take all of this, you know, 25 years, 50 something years as educators combined yeah. in literacy and say, you know, what's most important? So the process 
in the beginning was um, a lot of us just sort of weeding through what we were passionate about and figuring out how to make it um, doable. Because our number one complaint that we hear from teacher teams is literacy is too comprehensive. It's overwhelming. We are a professional learning community in math. We piloted this work in math. We have RTI in math. But with literacy, we often hear it's just too complex. We, we, we just, we're just rolling with our curriculum because how, how do you isolate what's essential? So that clarity took us a few months to wrap our heads around. And once we zeroed in, then we became sort of this unstoppable, ooh, and you know what else? And oh, I love this. And Jackie has the best, I mean, Jackie did not share with you that she is the queen of analogies. If you want a great analogy, she's the she's your person. And she would just like drop these bombs like, well, it's like sitting in a car with no wheels. You can say you're sitting in a car, but you're not going to go anywhere. And I'm like, write that down. Write that down right now. Stop. Well, word. I've spent 15 years with Jackie. You know. We text each other because we connect with like different analogies that have to do with like TV shows. The Brady Bunch. And so random. I get it. Randomness is yeah. her case too. Like <laughs> random, like only Jeopardy winners in like the entertainment <laughs> pop culture category of 1967 would know. Like it's like this. But anyway, so working with her was engaging and incredibly um collaborative we worked really hard to have one voice and yeah. so we would go on writing weekends where we would sequester ourselves in some fabulous location with ice cream and cookie dough and pizza whatever it is and we would um and and usually some sort of wine and we would uh write this chapter and leave with action steps and every chapter just got better and better and better. And then we were in a little bit of a time crunch. So the last two chapters, we split up and I wrote chapter four and she wrote right. chapter five. And what's fascinating to me, and this I think is a testament to how lucky I am to get to work with somebody who does share the same core values and experiences when it comes to this process. You can't tell even now which one of us wrote four and which one of us wrote five. And mm -hmm. I, we're not going to tell. We're not going to tell anybody. <laughs> But you yeah. cannot tell. And even our editor could not tell yeah. which was which. And I think that has, has um, talk about building efficacy through yeah. collaboration. Jackie built my sense of efficacy. You've got this. We have got this. And it was a delightful experience. Let's awesome. do it again, Jackie. Awesome. <laughs> Whoa, baby! Um, it's it's amazing. We had we had some peer reviews happening, and they would quote certain lines that they really liked as part of their feedback to us. And before we did the final edits, and I'd read a line I'm like, "Ooh, that is good, Paula. Way to go!" And she's like, "I didn't write that. Like, I don't remember writing that. One of us said it. <laughs> Which one? I don't remember anymore." But that means that your minds really melded. I mean, yeah. it was that's a, that's amazing. Hey, let's let's jump into the book. Um, when you talk about this idea of components of reading instruction, and you say, you know, a comprehensive literacy instructional block include, includes reading, writing, word study, listening, and speaking. But in this book, you focus really on reading instruction. Um, can you talk a little bit, even for I shouldn't say even, but for people who are not educators, 
Um, when we talk about reading instruction and we talk about phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, comprehension, and vocabulary, those pieces, um, and you talked a little bit about it earlier, reading is so broad and there's so many pieces to it. How, how can you help people make it a bit more simple um, in its understanding? If you're talking to a parent and a parent says, well, you're talking about phonemic awareness or you're talking about phonics or fluency, okay, what does that mean? Mm. Well, we have a book called Literacy and Appeal. See it. And if you read, <laughs> no, I think this is really important too, just to think about um, how the PLC process works, no matter what the subject. And this is where Jackie and I really started to um, think about how, how do we approach this in a way that allows us to deconstruct the components in order to reconstruct them? Because most of it is like the Burton Ernie. You can't have one without the other. You can't be fluent without the ability to decode and understand vocabulary and have, you know, this ability to read with prosody and things like that. So um, a lot of people, this is where we heard teams say, well, we get overwhelmed. There's too much. Yeah. So the way we approached it is taking it piece by piece. Um, looking at it from the lens of it all comes back together. It's all got to come back together. But for now, how do we peel back the layers in isolation to figure out which pieces of literacy are critical at what stage of learning? And then unfolding all of this sort of this map, this GPS to how do we figure out where we're coming back to, now let's break it down in it to its components, study those, study how they relate, and then put it all back together. So it's really about engineering. It's yeah. about design and taking each component in order to deeply study it so that we have clarity before we even try to build that level of, of literacy learning with our scholars. Jackie, you mentioned the reading wars earlier, and, you know, in our profession, you two know this, the pendulum swings back and forth with so many different initiatives, and depending on, you know, who sometimes has the loudest voice or who um, really has the influence during that time. But when we talk about the reading wars, um, you know, there was once whole language, and then it became, you know, phonics, you know, strictly, and then it became balanced literacy, and we, we hoped that would that would be the the kind of panacea to it all, but it, that didn't happen. And now it's, we have another kind of reading war where we're, you know, some people are really say we need to focus on, you know, the science of reading. And I'm not going to jump into the different, you know, approaches, but you all jumped into the approach and you said, it doesn't matter what those approaches are. We're, we're, we're as you say, Switzerland, the PLC process is something that you all can use with whatever approach and we're going to help you. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, districts are in different places and they're um, sometimes teachers just caught in the middle. So teachers like, if you know, a random teacher is on TikTok and Instagram and, and all those places. They're seeing things about literacy and um, that their district may or may not yet be embracing. So uh, it doesn't matter where you are in, in your curriculum. Um, the thing that was missing is that teams need to be making collective decisions about the literacy process. And in some places, 
Um, it's left up to individual teachers. And so our, our book, we take the, the acronym TEAMS and each letter stands for um, one of the elements that we want teams to engage in. And if you have a purchased curriculum that is in tune to every aspect of the science of reading, you're still gonna engage in this process to make sure that you're building the capacity of the team to deeply understand the standards that you have to teach. And then you'll use that curriculum and it's aligned to the standards. If you are in a district that is, is not embracing the science of reading, you are still um, doing balanced literacy, you're gonna do the same thing. So teams need to make those decisions together, supported by guidance from their, their district. But um, we, we do talk a little bit about the reading wars early in the book, and we just kind of felt like we had to address the elephant in the room. And the, the heading for that section is making peace with the reading wars. And not that we are offering up the answer that will bring the whole country you know, peace in this area, but our teachers and our teams have to make peace with the fact that there is no one best way to teach any child to read. Um, it is it is a process. And um, sometimes those reading wars have meant that we're looking for the next silver bullet, the next, um, what new curriculum can we purchase because it's the one being touted now as opposed to the one that was being touted five years ago. And what we, we know from the research is that it's the teacher in front of the students that make the biggest difference. And so how can we engage in a team process to build the capacity of the teachers to ensure that every student is literate at high levels and the war against illiteracy is the only war that we care to engage in. So um, I, like that, I like that yeah. quote in your uh, in your book, you know, the we believe the only reading war we should be fighting is the war on illiteracy. It's really important. Yeah. Because we're all in this together. I mean, I, I, I take this quote from Diane Kerr, presume positive intentions. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, every teacher that I know of wants kids to learn how to read. And it's it's so tied, it's so personal for so many um, literacy educators that uh, if if you are embracing the science of reading and you are working with educators who are not, um, you know, we've had teachers just in tears, absolute sobbing because they've been told, put a lock on your bookroom door and do not let those teachers access the leveled texts that they've been using up until now, because we are now doing science of reading and those texts have done damage to children. And teachers are looking back and saying, I didn't, I didn't know I was doing damage. I didn't mean to, what did I do wrong? And that, you know, it's the way the message is being conveyed that, um, deeply disturbs me because you're right, presume positive intentions. They were doing the best they knew how with what they had available to them at the time. And if we want them to engage in some new learning around literacy, great. But the way the message is being conveyed is just fueling these wars. It's keeping right. us very divisive. Right. I think that's where I'm not mad that there's a lot of hype about it because it's almost like, you know, Hollywood says any press is good press. Mm -hmm. At least we are talking about ensuring literacy. What method we use, I'm, I, hey, if it works, I'm behind it. Yeah. Um, but at least we're talking about how critical it is that we focus on literacy, because if it, when we're looking just at data nationally prior to the pandemic, we're graduating almost 60% of our scholars below grade level. And that average reading rate of those 60% is about second grade. And if you are a scholar in a um, situation where you live in poverty or you are in historically unrepresented or underserved populations, um, 
that's 80%. We're graduating 80% of students who live in poverty below grade level. So it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. And listen, the podcast sold a story. You know what? Um, all of that hype, bring it on because that just puts the issue in the middle of the table for us to come up with solutions. And for you all, again, using the PLC process, really, you know, when we talk about, you know, magic bullets or golden tickets, um, I don't think any one initiative is a golden ticket or is the answer, except for the PLC process, <laughs> except for the PLC process. Everything else, we can filter through that and we can use. So talk a little bit about three, four, five of teaching, reading in the PLC process, the three big ideas, four critical questions. And that, that five piece is you use an acronym, TEAMS, which is aligned to the tight elements of the PLC process. And so let's go through that. Um, when we talk about the three big ideas, a focus on learning, culture of collaboration, and a focus on results, you make sure that you anchor everything that we do through those big ideas. Yeah, so um, uh, in Learning by Doing, Rick DeFore talks about six elements within the PLC process, but he later wrote a, an article um, where he kind of combined two of them into five. And we were taking a look at those and really thought about, um, we want to make sure that teams really deeply understand how best to approach literacy and focus on learning, right? That first big idea, not what are we gonna teach in literacy? What books are we gonna use? What curriculum are we gonna use? But how are we going to ensure that we're changing those stats that Paula just said, and more of our scholars are learning to read at high levels. And so we embraced that PLC process and said, let's take these elements and um, <laughs> trying to come up with an analogy, a hook, a way to you know present sure. it so that people would get it and hold on to it. I was I was trying to, you know, come up with an acronym. And um, the first element is, is teams have to take uh, collective responsibility and work interdependently towards a common goal. Yep. And so I took a word out of that interdependently because that's the piece that's missing. A lot right. of times we call them the second grade team, but they're really just a group, right? They really aren't working interdependently towards that common goal. So we really wanted to focus on that I. And then the, the next element is that we have to ensure a guaranteed and viable curriculum. And that's not happening. There is that still that educational lottery. It depends what classroom your child gets assigned, what they're gonna focus on in, in reading oftentimes. And so in that one, I was like, okay, it's not guaranteed. And so we need it to be guaranteed. And so I've got an I for that, that first element of interdependency. And I've got a G for that next one of guaranteed. And I try to keep going through the elements and come up and, I came up with what I thought was a lovely acronym. <laughs> I G O U P. I go up, meaning like I'm going to go up in my reading. I'm going to become a better reader. I go up and <laughs> all proud of myself. I turn my computer around and I show it to Paula. And I, like, and I was like, I do. I do. I do. I do. I go like you like when I pull out of my dog's eye. I go. okay back to the oh, that didn't work right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so in all of her brilliance, Paula eventually took I goop and turned it into teams, which makes so much more sense. <laughs> so oh, that first first element really is that we need teams to take collective responsibility. And so that's so, your and that's your first chapter. Yes. Right. And so when we talk about 
you know, you said, you know, a team is not a team if, if, if we don't have interdependence. And, and what Rick would say is, and you, you mentioned it, is that you can't have interdependence if you don't have a team goal, right? right? Because yeah. if we don't have a goal that we're sharing, if Paul and Brian and Jackie don't have a goal, then I can take it or leave it. You know, we can collaborate, but if we don't, if I don't need to, I don't need you to achieve this goal, then I don't need you. Because reading is the number one thing that external forces are looking at to determine whether or not a school is doing well, almost every school improvement plan out there has a, a student achievement goal for reading, right? Like any school improvement plan you see, anything you have to submit to your district is going to have a goal on there for reading, but it usually stays at that school level and it doesn't become a team goal. And if it does become a team goal, it's written on a school improvement plan in September, October, and never to be seen again until the end of the year. So one thing that we really need teams to do is come up with their own team goal. What is our SMART goal? And the SMART goal needs to be not that 80% of my students will be able to read on grade level and 80% of your students and 80% of your students, but 80% of the fifth grade students so that now we have a common goal and we're going to work together interdependently. And I've got to make sure that Anything that's working in my classroom and reading, I'm sharing with you because I need your students to get to that goal too, or else I can't meet our goal. So talk, talk some about some of the tools that help teams do that. You know, do you have common agendas that guard and protect your collaborative time for the things that have the greatest impact on students learning to read? Are you sharing things and shared drives? Like what are the tools that teams use? Mm -hmm. At the end of your chapters, you, um talk about this idea of get going, um, get started, get better. Where'd that come from? Um, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with, we read a lot of books and we hear a lot of great research and, and theory and we love, you know, we call him John Hottie because of his Australian accent, but we love John Hattie, Hottie, whatever. Um, and we love to bring all the research together and we admire, uh, we admire a lot of this and we go to workshops and we go, oh, that's a really great idea. But there is no learning without an actionable response. And so that part of, okay, now we've anchored it. We've supported you. We've given you tools and ideas and templates. Now do something. What are you going to do? This, and what action will you follow through? And sometimes, um, and, and this was really important for Jackie and I as well. Um, we always knew that this couldn't be a how to teach reading book. Yeah. We, we have a million of those and, and half of those are amazing, really great quality out there. But what we didn't have was how do you collectively come together around literacy outcomes through this process? And you can't just sit at a table and talk about it. You have to pick up from that collaborative table and go back into your classrooms and make it happen. Now, some of our, our teams, we knew we were writing for teams. Right. Um, some of our teams are already professional learning communities that are uh, effective and proficient in that work. So then it's a matter of wherever you are, how do we level up? So for some teams, it's you're already a professional learning community engaged in this, this, and this. Try this to level up learning. And then for some of the teams that are just starting this process and on are and on are on their way to become a professional learning community, 
get started. So whichever end of the spectrum, there's a place for you to take a best next step, but you got to move. You got to take the step. I love that because you give people an entry point without making them feel bad. You're like, everybody's going to engage in this journey. Some people will start here. And those people who are here, they were here at one point. So how do we just, as you say, get going, get started, get better? I like that. I also really like the fact that you all, and this, Jackie will appreciate this, that you all, you too, define terms. You make sure that there's clarity throughout the book. In each chapter, you're defining terms to make sure that people are clear. As as Becky DeFore used to say, clarity precedes competence. And so to make sure we can row with, as one team, speak with one voice, you know, have common language, common knowledge, and common expectations, it's critically important. And I think some of, so we do have a, a word study section in, in each chapter, kind of defining the words that we're talking about. But I think some of that too was a nod to our fellow literacy geek friends who are going to be reading and are into the morphology and um, yeah. understanding of, of words. So that that was fun. And it also, you know, we keep coming back to what's essential, what's essential for our students to learn, what's essential for our teams to collaborate about. And those were the most essential words that we made sure that we had clarity about in each section. When you talk about this idea in chapter two of a guaranteed and viable curriculum, and as I said, there are so many components to reading. Um, I, I really like the, the way you, you broke it down. And also, I like the way you said start slow and start small um, for, for many people because they, they get overwhelmed. And I think sometimes people think that we have to collaborate around the entire curriculum and 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 it's impossible. We can't do that. We only have so much collaborative time. So can you talk a little bit about the chapter two, ensuring a guaranteed viable curriculum and what that really means? Yeah, so Paula's uh, pie charts are are in chapter two, and it kind of gives a, a guideline as teams start to discuss and evaluate their current curriculum. And if you are in K through two, you're going to spend more of your instructional minutes on some of those reading foundational skills and if you're in the upper grades, you're going to spend more of your instructional minutes on those reading comprehension skills, but we really can't leave out any one component. And so there's a little bit of, of um, thinking about your reading curriculum and then while you're looking at it, deciding what is essential. And so anybody who's been engaged in the PLC process has um, probably identified essential standards in the past, but we offer a template and really emphasize for every single one of our templates and tools in there, it is not about filling out the boxes in this tool. This tool is you all are to have a a powerful collaborative discussion where you're building the capacity of your team to deeply understand what it means that students need to learn. And somebody should be recording that somewhere. And so we offer up this template as consider these things. And so Sometimes when people identify essential standards that, you know, they roll their eyes. Oh, yeah, we've circled the verbs and underlined the nouns. And um, but we we really are pretty detailed because we want them to consider, like, have you looked at the standard in the grade level below to scoop up the prerequisites? Have you looked at the standard in the grade level above to consider how to extend? Have you looked at release test items? Have you considered um, questions to go along with your ICANN statement? Have you thought about the academic vocabulary? So. It's really just a a protocol for a team discussion, and hopefully they will capture that discussion in electronic form so that this time next year, they're not having the same discussion, but they're building on it and constantly refining and getting better. 
Yeah. And I think that's one of the the greatest challenges that we face when we coach our teams on site. And Jackie and I are in this work every day, um, whether we're coaching teams through a process in math, because apparently I can, <laughs> thank you, coach, um, PLC process in math. Occasionally they let me play in that area. Um, but, uh, you know, we hear often, gosh, there's just, you know, like, but our curriculum and on this story, we have all these in our pacing guide, we have to cover this, this, and this within this story. And of all the times we've heard, less has to be more. You have to focus on what's most important. It's counterintuitive for literacy teachers. And I'll never forget being a fifth grade teacher and going to hear Becky and Rick and and uh, Tom Maney was presenting at this conference and and uh, Dr. Bob Aker. Yeah. And I remember them doing the whole skit about the essential standards. And I remember my fifth grade team having team time. It was it was on the San Antonio Riverwalk. So we remember most of what we said. <laughs> Maybe Howl at the Moon, you know, uh, made us forget a little bit. But I remember we were so excited to limit down. And so we went back and that July, we all gathered at somebody's house and we created our GVC because that's what the cool people said after they went to the Bible curriculum, the guaranteed Bible curriculum. So we created our GVC and I will never forget. We were so proud that we went from 59 literacy standards, including language to 52 <laughs> <laughs> instead of choosing seven to focus on, we eliminated seven to focus on. And I think you can imagine the disaster that collaboration was that year because it's just not doable. And I think um, when Jackie and I were talking about no matter where you are as a team, less has to be more and that it's not just about ensuring that students learn these non-discretionary components of literacy. It's that teachers are allowed the space and grace as well to hone their craft, to say, let's get really good at a couple of essential literacies and flex and build our skill set. And then once we have those, uh, that efficacy, then we'll scoop up and add a few more because, you know, teachers are learners too. So, so we needed a way to communicate that. And I think chapter two does a really good job of helping teams understand exactly what Jackie said. This is the work. It's not a checkity check, fill out the box, turn in a compliance form. It's what rich discussions can we have to build shared knowledge through collective inquiry? That, that's what we want to get to. Yeah. And I think this, this misunderstanding at times where People say, well, is this all we're going to teach? No, you're going to teach the vast majority of the curriculum, but you're going to collaborate on these few things. That's right. right? And I think people have this misunderstanding and, and then they they go to one extreme to the other. And, and it's not, it's like, okay, we're going to teach the vast majority of the curriculum. And in your individual, individual classrooms, you may be checking for understanding and monitoring, but on these essentials, this is where we come together and we say, we're going to ensure. That's that right. We get it. There's, there's a an additional layer that's tough within literacy because with the rise of science of reading, which very much backs explicit systematic instruction, um, some teachers who are very good rule followers uh, really look at their scripted curriculum that they're supposed to be using in, in literacy and think they're doing the right thing by being on page 42 on the 42nd day of school. And so 
that's a focus on teaching. And, you know, we're, we're saying we need to focus on learning. Are your students learning to read? And what are we going to collaborate around? Yes, we will use that curriculum with fidelity. We will implement it with integrity, but right. we're going to make some decisions as a team that when life happens and you're pulled out of the building for three days for this professional development, and then you're sick for this day. And when those things happen, what are we going to guarantee? Which lessons give our students the best opportunities to become proficient on the essentials? And those are the ones yeah. that we got to emphasize. Because you might be on page 42, but half your class <laughs> is still on page seven. <laughs> so like, how do you balance the requirement with the, with the need that is driven by students learning? Yeah. Hey, chapter three, assess and monitor learning regularly through common formative assessments. Can we just talk a little bit about um, making sure that we're clear on what a common formative assessment is and how that's aligned to the essentials that we chose? Whew, that chapter was tough to keep as one chapter. <laughs> that could have easily exploded into two or more chapters. Or another uh, book, or yeah. another book, yeah. Yeah, I think in, in reading, we use lots of screeners now. Um, there are lots of nationally normed screeners in our schools. We wanna catch the students that aren't reading. And so there is no shortage of data. Um, if we you know, offered a door prize for who can quickly find a spreadsheet that has kids highlighted in red, yellow, and green, boom, like everybody would find, be able to find one from their site within 4.2 seconds, right? We've all got them, yep. um, but it's how are we using that information? And does that information tell us exactly, you know, by name and by need, what which students need which skills? So sometimes that nationally normed data is common, but it is not formative. Right. And uh, sometimes there are assessments that come with our purchased curriculum that might also be common and they also might be formative, but they aren't giving us the information we need about where our students are on specific learning targets on specific essential standards. And right. so um, in the midst of using all that other data, we also need to think about, do we have team developed common formative assessments that are aligned to the specific learning targets along our learning progression? And common in all ways too, because I mean, we think we addressed, you know, Jackie and I hear all the time, wait a minute, um, my class needs me to read it out loud to them. And my class, they take a little bit more time. And so we took two days and I was absent. So I gave it six weeks later or six days later, sorry, or I used a different text at elementary. And so common in all ways, given in the same day the same way with the team having decided all of that prior to the test uh, being distributed to students because that data helps us collectively learn. And we move away, particularly in this chapter, from a value or judgment placed on where students are in their learning to a data is the story of where we go next. Yeah. This, this is where we are. Here's the story of where we go next. What action will we take to move them forward? Yeah, I can remember um, at Mason Crest, Jackie would have, you know, a group of teachers observing, you know, uh, each other, or they've had conversations, and then they would observe a teacher giving an assessment, because they want to make sure that we are, again, our language is clear, we're giving the same prompts, we're not over prompting one teacher and one teacher doesn't give prompts. And, and so to make it sure it's valid and reliable, we have to have those conversations up front. Yeah, for sure. And it's, I mean, it even on a super simple assessment, like a kindergarten teacher assessing letter recognition, you know, if, if one teacher is 
pointing to the letters for them and another teacher is, is not, are the students really tracking as well? If one teacher, you know, pauses after a student says B when the letter's really D and gives them the side eye, you know? <laughs> she didn't say anything, yeah, but, but if you pause long enough with a side yeah. eye, are they going to change that answer? So yeah, it's um, becoming truly common is hard. And, and we do address uh, a frequently asked question is I teach in the upper grades and I have students reading below grade level and they have decoding difficulties. So they cannot independently read the grade level text. And so how do I assess them on comprehension skills? Like, how do I know if they can determine theme or main idea and key details? And so we get into that because that that's a legitimate question and it's there's not great easy answers, but it's something that the team has to discuss and come to a decision and have clarity on and make sure the criteria is common for all students at the grade level. I think one of the things that sometimes people misunderstand is that you know, a, a fifth grader could be reading below grade level, but still have a fifth grade brain, right? Thank you. you know, it's That's like right. you know, they still can understand. If I read them a passage, they could, you know, tell me what's happening in that passage. They might not be able to to read the passage, but they have a fifth grade brain. Yeah. You know? So I think that's really important for us to understand because sometimes people equate reading below grade level with being a second grader still, and that's not true. That's no. not true. That's not true. It, that's right. it is misplaced sympathy to alter the expectations for students that decode below grade level. They do not think below grade level. Yeah, I see our goal card showed up in chapter, chapter three. Yeah. The goal cards, I think, are, um, you know, one of the reasons that I was grateful to partner with Jackie, um, uh, because I knew that the goal cards were going to be the reason this book sold. It is such <laughs> a fabulous uh, opportunity for students to be learners alongside yeah. us and take this idea of assessment isn't about sorting and collecting kids into categories. Um, it's about building that efficacy through literacy and setting those goals and then collectively as a team and then also partnering with our littlest scholars, even our cutest little bitty scholars can partner with us on how to set those goals and monitor their own progress. So that that goal card is a lot of fun. Um, and actually, I'm excited because our next book, although Jackie um, has sworn she's never writing another book again, I'm still working on her. Um, our next book is this book at the secondary level. And so a lot of things that we've been doing on my secondary campuses are taking these ideas from Mason Crest on goal cards and moving them into the secondary level so that there's also this visual representation of a pathway to learning. So I'm excited that... Um, you're going to want to check out the book just for the gold card. <laughs> well, and again, our book, our other book, What About Us, you yes. know, Jackie and, and Tracy did a marvelous job with the gold cards and, yes. and the vignettes. And in your book, you, you don't call them vignettes. No, we've only got <laughs> one chapter. One chapter has a, has a scenario in it. Yes. All right. Chapter four, measure of evidence of effectiveness of individual and collective teacher practices. Hear me now, people, and I'm gonna have you all talk to this. This is not about ranking teachers. It's not about sorting teachers. It's not about evaluating teachers. It's not about looking at who's a good teacher and a bad teacher. It's about looking at what? Learning. It's about looking at learning. How are we also 
dedicated to our craft and profession? How do we utilize data so that we grow our professional literacy practices? And I'll be honest with you, you know, I've been through this process as a teacher, um, PLC process teacher a long time, an instructional coach, administrator at the campus and district level. And I will tell you, this is where it breaks down every time. We get up to this point as a collaborative team where we're looking at data to learn about kids and we're all, it's all fun and games until I'm asked to be vulnerable to talk about my practice and where I stand in serving kids. And we take it um, so personally because we're so invested. It, it's natural to care so much and to feel like maybe what I'm doing isn't effective. So Jackie and I work through scenarios because we're not fancy enough to call them vignette. Um, <laughs> we can't spell vignette. Yeah, we can't spell it. Um, it's not decodable. So we, uh, we actually felt like it would be a really powerful way instead of continuing to look at templates and analyze data, we thought, we we literally said, we wish that we could insert a video here so that, you know, you can scan a QR code in our book and see yeah. the team have this conversation because we wanted to eavesdrop to hear what it was when it's a, when it's a conversation that is a learning conversation and then a conversation that's a data compliance conversation. Both scenarios are from schools who are embedded in the PLC process, yeah. but one is a highly effective conversation that leads to learning. And one is check the box. We have this discussion, let's leave and walk away. And all of the, of the student learning remains on the table in that data form and never moves beyond that protocol. Yeah. So it was really fun to write it. We, we had a lot of fun with this one. Your um, your quote from Anthony, Dr. Muhammad says, "Healthy cultures run towards data." He also says, um, "Data is information, not condemnation." Absolutely. Right? It's not about pointing it and saying that you're doing this wrong. It's like my teammate is more effective in this area. How can I learn from him or her? Yeah, and I think it's also too that hey. Our students aren't where they need to be. Maybe all of us had about the same level. Yeah. What do we need to learn? Not let's, you know, can somebody go fix the kids? Nobody's coming. Nobody's coming <laughs> to like yeah. tink, 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 and fix the kids. Like it just, it's our work that ensures that they do. So sometimes we're all even Steven and we're looking around going, what's next? Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. And if you know, that vulnerability piece. And we give a couple of examples, but for a while as an instructional coach, we had to start this process without data. And we talk about that in our book, Getting Started. If you're just getting started, we we talked about the data, I'm sorry, without names. We removed students' names and teachers' names. And we just had conversations about what was in front of us and what we could learn from. And then from that protocol, we started to add back in names and it was the seamless transition because if iron sharpens iron you have to be willing to lay that sword on the table yeah. you have to give up the armor and give up the weapon long enough to be able to have um this this sense of we yeah. got this and i know this guy he has the best saying he says the answers are in the room i don't know if you know him he's this famous basketball player named brian butler um but i quote this dude all the time because it's so true like look to your left look to your right 
if the answer isn't in the room, the right question is, yeah. and that moves us forward. Well, and Tom Maney, even you know, when I said that one time, he said, you know, you know what, Brian, the answer may not be in the room, but the room can be the answer, right? Like you just yeah. said, I mean, we can yeah. figure it out, look outside of we'll ourselves, figure and we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah. And I think we hear from a lot of teams that, oh, we just run out of time. You know, we start looking at the data and we sort the kids into groups and we're talking about goals for those groups. And then we don't have time to to talk about our practice and those questions. And really how much of that is is what you're prioritizing. So um, we really need to use- Or to, avoiding. Yes, to, to improve our individual and collective practices or else no matter what interventions you do for those kids this year, this time next year, you're going to get the same results, right? Like you're not going to improve your collective results for next year's cohort of kids if we don't figure out what can we learn from this. Yeah. And well, I think that's what our chapter does too, is take away the the weight of it. Like it's just how we roll. Here's how you have the discussion. It's not personal. In fact, the only personal part of it is we are personally investing in each other in our work. Like that's the only thing that's that's personal about it. It's just let's let's invest in each other. Critically important. All right, final chapter, chapter five, S, systematically provide interventions and extensions to meet all students' needs. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that really makes sure that we are answering critical questions three and four. You know, how do we respond when kids don't learn? And then how do we extend for students who already know some of the material, the essential this, Yeah, this could have also been an entire book on its own. Like we could not find a stopping point, but go Jackie, I interrupted you. No, it's um, that that S for this chapter systematically is, is the keyword over yes. support. I think a lot of places we are supporting our learners that don't get it the first time around. They need some additional time and support, but are we doing it systematically? Because right. we have these data discussions, we sort kids into groups, we make some goals for the groups, and then it's up to each individual teacher to go, you know, and one teacher might be meeting with their groups three times a week and somebody else once, and we don't leave with an actual plan. It's not systematic. And so um, getting back to that idea of get going or get started, those of you who are, you know, you might have a win time or an intervention block, or you've got interventions and extensions going, can we look at how we're making it more systematically? That's how we get better at this. And for those that are just getting started, we've got to find a way in the schedule to give kids more time and support that need it. So um, we address both. Yeah. And I think this is really fun for Jackie and I, because we get to see the culminating piece of, you know, we spend so much time begging people to develop a GVC, a guaranteed and viable curriculum and those essentials. Like we are begging you, please, if you do anything, half and hone your list of what's essential because this is where the rubber meets the road because you cannot intervene on every standard that moves and you cannot intervene on every literacy uh, skill or disposition that moves. And most, if we're being honest, of our literacy programs that are intervention-based are buffets. They are literal smorgasbord, all-you-can-eat buffets of literacy intervention. And we're used to unwrapping the cellophane or typing in a student login info, uh, number into the program and thinking that's intervention. And so what I love about this chapter is systematically also means we guarantee these outcomes based on what we've already said was essential. It isn't the, you know, just put them in a group and hope for the best. It's 
it's diagnostic. It's with precision that we move students forward with literacy. So that's why this chapter nerds me out because we get the opportunity to be so precise that um, with that precision, coupled with the teacher's clarity on what that essential looks like, sounds like, and feels like, the kids have no choice but to reach grade level proficiency. Like with it, it's, it's just a no brainer because we've done the work and now we, we create the structure that lifts us up in that work. You know, one of the things that reminds me of this work, um, just from listening to both of you, um, when people say, well, does this really work? And I look at you two and I look at myself in the mirror and say, we lived it. 100%. We know it works. Um, is it easy? No. Is it worth it? Yeah, because we know that if we do this work collectively and we use this book, truly this book is going to be a game changer for so many people because they're not going to have to use an excuse and say, well, we have to use this program or we have to use this program. It's not about that program. Use that program to use our process to enhance whatever you're doing in order for us to make sure we meet the needs of every single child. One of our, Jackie and I like to like have buzzwords and tweetable moments that we think, because we are brilliant. I mean, let's get real, but we think we're far yeah. more brilliant than we really are. Um, <laughs> we would like find things like Jackie would say like these zingers and we'd be like, Ooh, that's so good. And then we would forget what they were. So we'd have to go back in the book, but one of them that keeps resonating with me and I, and I, I say it all the time and I don't even think it's our original idea. I think we just put literacy in it, but it's, we're so passionate about the idea that literacy must be a process, the process built by people, not programs. And, and that I think sums up how we've approached this book, that it is one rich discussion and, and one opportunity to collectively learn and grow together to ensure students learn after another. And pretty soon you put all those conversations and all that learning together, the pretty solid plan to ensure students learn. Well, you too. Go ahead, Jackie. Oh, no, it's just, um, you know, we, we had said we had a nod to our, our literacy geek friends reading this, but um, when we talk about collaborating around the work, you know, like the morphology of it, the, the base of collaboration is labor, you know, the prefix co to do together, like you need to be doing the work together. It's not the co-collaboration. We're going to meet and talk and we don't get anything done and we still have to go do our own work. Like this is truly about what should it look like and sound like and feel like when you are doing the work together that changes literacy outcomes for students. Yeah. Last question. Um, who have been, you know, the, the influencers in your life, in your lives, in terms of um, where you are today um, as educators, um, beyond your your family? As I, I talked to uh, Mike Matos and Luis Cruz in my last show, I just asked them, who are the one or two people who have truly um, changed your trajectory as, or just enhanced your your trajectory as as educators? Mm -hmm. um oh i don't know that i can say it without tearing up so you um which i i don't know if you were ready for the story or not but um i was a damn good reading interventionist i like i know i look back i could you give me 
any child on this planet, I can teach them to read if I get them one-on-one. -on -one. I, I absolutely know I can. I've got that skill set. Um, I had- I wanted you as my teacher. Yeah, I had 15 years of, of, of experience with it. I was a, a, a good literacy interventionist. Um, and you knew it. And you said, every teacher in this school has to be able to do what you do. And I say, oh, you know, they can get reading recovery trained and there's all this training you can do. And, and you said, no, we have you. It's like, well, no, that's not my job. I teach kids. Like, yeah, but you teach kids to read, but you're not the only adult that works with them. They all need to know how to do what you do. And so your job's not done until they do. And so let's look at your schedule and we're going to figure it out. But you are now going to be available for every first grade team meeting. Like you need to have a seat at the table when they're talking about literacy and um, it it kind of changed my trajectory. I had no desire to work with adults at the time, none. I loved working with kids. I, I mean, that was my career path is I was gonna stay a practitioner forever. I didn't wanna be an administrator. I didn't wanna do anything where I was managing adults. I was in my happy place. Um, and you kind of kicked me in the tail and said, not good enough. Nope, you can do more. And um, Ever since then, it's been, okay, so now I can see the impact when I'm not just teaching my handful of students, but now the whole first grade team has a plan in place that's going to affect all of their students. All right, give me kindergarten, give me second grade, now the whole early literacy, now I'll work with the whole school, now I'm going to go work with other schools, and, and now we've taken it national. So um, it's been a major influence, and um, you, have a, you have a lot of skill sets too, but your number one skill set is as a capacity builder. That's kind of you, Jackie, but we needed you. We needed you. <laughs> Paula. I can't top that. Like I'm getting teary-eyed, like hearing it. And she's like, I'm not going to cry. And here I am like, it's not even my story. Uh, you know, I, I get asked this question a lot. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people, when they listen to your podcast or they listen to the people that have been engaged in this work, the impact that the champions of this work um, have had on us have been tremendous. And so, of course, um, the the founders and the, the architects of the PLC at work process, I'm going to say, you know, um, I had a lot of people speak a vision of, of me being able to lead this work. Like Jackie, I was like, what? I just want to work with kids, man. I just, I just want to change lives with kids. And um, I have to thank Ken Williams for actually saying that this was a thing that wait a minute, you can go lead this work. And and I just thought famous people were at conferences. I, you know, like, and I asked them to sign my forehead in Sharpie and without shame. And um, you know, a few restraining orders later found out that, you know, this work isn't just about being superintendents and principals, that it's boots on the ground practitioners like me, and I'm still a practitioner. I'm still working side by side with um with teams and uh, figuring it out. I, so Ken was the first person who said, like, like you said to Jackie, have you thought about leading this in a different way? But I have to say, you know, when I think about the biggest influences on me in my work, it's not the grownups that come to mind first. It's very specific kids. Mm -hmm. It's that taught me how to be better for them. And sometimes it's by accident and sometimes it's by them telling you. And even with some of my littlest scholars and of course my favorite grades to teach are fourth, fifth and sixth. And I think about specific names and how, man, they taught me um, 
how to persevere when a scholar refused to work. And then kids who came broken and had no self-esteem. And the first thing I had to do was find ways to, to help them feel safe to take a risk. And so I would say it's kids, but I got to give a shout out to one of the greats of literacy instruction. And she's not very well known and she should be. Um, her name is Chris Tavani. And I've tried to follow her on Twitter. And Chris, if you're out there, I would I would love a return <laughs> follow. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit of a of a super fan. And Chris Tavani is a literacy specialist who comes into districts and 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 works. She's out of Colorado. It's scary that I know that, but she's out of Colorado. And she um, contributed this chapter in a book about comprehension. So she came to our district, and I had never heard the approach of student-centered learning before. And I and while I had heard lots of, you know, new sexy articles and ASCD and the National Education for Teacher uh Teachers of Literacy, Chris came to our campus and made it so practical and so doable and so approachable. And I'll never forget how I felt with that kind of clarity. Yeah. And that's the first time that all the pieces came together in a way that I could take them apart, figure them all out and put them back together. And that inspired me to make support my number one goal for the teacher teams that I served. So she had a great influence on me in making what seems impossible, not only possible, but probable. Uh, so, so I got to give her credit, Chris. Call me, <laughs> tweet me back. It is awesome. <laughs> At the end of each one of my uh, podcasts, I share this um, quote. Jackie has heard it. Um, it's from my dad's funeral. White when I did the eulogy at his funeral, it goes, "As I go, I am wearing you." And you know, everybody has has. There has been so many people who have influenced me, and you two are up the top, up at the top of that chart. Um, and I'm wearing you because of just what I learned from you all. I don't know if you realize that when I text you two, I, I get a response because I want a response because there's some type of wisdom, even if it's a wit, some type of wit that you, you send back. But this book is going to, as I said in some previous promos, sweep the country because it really is going to stand the test of time because it's not about a program. It's about this process that has stand, stood the test of time that has allowed for educators to lean on each other, to be vulnerable, to share their gifts with each other in order for us to lift every single child up. And so that's what you two do for me when I text you, when I, when I you know, hear you, when I um, just, um, just through our time together tonight, I really believe that you two are among the best literacy people in this country. And if people do not read this book, it's their fault. Um, it, it really is gonna help more kids. So thank you two for coming on a conversation with Brian tonight. I really appreciate it. I love you too, and uh, Godspeed. What an I'm honor. Glad, I'm glad I wore waterproof <laughs> mascara, B. Uh, <laughs> thanks to the best hype man and cheerleader for educators that ever lived. Because if there's anybody who makes it a daily practice to lift others up, it's you. So thank you.
I've told him for 15 years, Paula, that one day he's going to have to duke it out with my 94-year-old mother for president of my fan club because Aww. that's how he sees his job. He is the president of everyone else's fan club. And well, it's genuine. So, B, we thank yeah. you for sure. Thank you very much. Right. Good night, friends. Thanks so much. Good conversation. Thanks. Subscribe to A Conversation with Brian on Spotify. Thank you.